1: hello welcome to fighting in the war room episode 18 for god what day is it april 11th 2014 as you can tell katie rich not here for the review segment how, this how would week. they be able
2: to tell that i guess because she introduces the show she normally
1: yeah as as most listeners as you should probably know from being on the show on a I regular basis uh, katie usually does the intro so one can assume anyway uh... We are all here, including David, obviously, and Dave with a seven Gonzalez Association hey, review segment.
0: We need to update the bingo card because the Dave saw the movie <laughs> square gets checked off today.
1: Well, why would you update it? Wouldn't you just cross it off?
0: Well, because it uses the name that we don't, we don't use don't anymore. Know. Oh,
1: yeah. we so We to be a Someone Fighting in the War a, Room bingo card. We don't, we don't have a bingo card for Fighting you know in the what? War Room.
0: You know what? I'll take care of that. Go to fightinginthewarroom.com <laughs> right now, and the bingo card will be in. download your uh, pdf here we go shit gets done i'm giving you a space right now by having seen a naked scarlett johansson movie for the week katie isn't here
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, um, because it's such a boys' club, two out of three of us have beers open. We're, we're brewing. We're, we're but b- which two? jamming. Which two? Have That's going to be revealed over the course of this yeah. episode. We have a lot to cover, gentlemen. Why don't we get right into this? Um, the main movie we're talking <laughs> about today is Under the Skin, as revealed by Dave. Uh, the latest film from Jonathan Glazer. Um, well, When was the last? I mean, birth was 2004. So it really has been a decade since he's put out a movie and I think he's basically been working on Under the Skin since then. David, you probably know the the history there.
2: Well I mean he's certainly been doing he's a innovative and I mean yeah people are familiar with his music video work, but he has you know made a lot of commercials that you would certainly recognize as, as his or would recognize just in general if you saw them over the past 10 years and before that, uh, including... I think he made a commercial
1: for Flake Chocolate Bars with Denis Levant.
2: With Denis Levant, right, which is really wild and great <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Um, and
1: I love Flake, so that was a real
2: match of Brandon Art. right now and get a nice appetizer uh, or nightcap, if you've already seen, under the skin, for under the skin. But anyway, he uh, he's definitely been working. This has been his day job, making under the skin for at least the last nine years. But... The movie uh, it took a while to reach this particular form. It's adapted from a book bought by uh, Michelle Faber, I believe, is the last name. Which uh, is it, it, it
1: Faber? Who knows?
2: I don't know. But the uh, <laughs> it, it is quite the loose adaptation. I mean, it takes the premise and even then barely that uh, the character again only only sort of vaguely related to the one from the book. Uh, and there are no moments from the book that. Uh, The actual beats or whatnot that actually appear in the film, not a single one. Um, But the movie was originally going to be a $40 million film uh, starring Brad Pitt, where the alien that we will discuss, who's played by Scarlett Johansson, lived with Brad Pitt, her minder, or, you know, his role was a little bit more explicit in that version on a farm. Um, And that movie fell apart, I think, right before they were about to go into production. Uh, And so perhaps for the best, as I think – as I think Jonathan Glazer would probably agree, they regrouped. They shortened the the story down to the point where they all the logistics were sort of trimmed out of this already rather hazy narrative. And uh, what he had left was the film uh, that is finally in theaters now.
1: Now, Dave, just before the podcast. Caught under the skin. So Dave, as a gut reaction, since David and I have had time to stew, I'm I'm very curious about what you think. About under the skin, how it hit you?
0: Yeah, I'm under an hour out, and I usually try to uh,
1: perfect for this type of movie.
0: Yeah, I usually try to not make any you know lines in the sand until I've given myself at least twelve hours. Otherwise, I would still say the Dark Knight is probably the best movie ever, and Lord knows that's not true. So, IMDb top twenty two fifty. Well, speaking of
2: IMDb, Dark Knight is only one of the ten best movies ever. Please,
0: yeah. Speaking of IMDb, I'm on the page for Under the Skin, and it's like people who've liked this also liked. Super Eight, about time. Pacific Rim, and I have no idea what movie they thought they were seeing. That's like <laughs> well, the I'm worst. Sure that's the worst uh, keyword association I've ever seen. Well, done the key, to a movie. the keywords would align. Yeah, almost. yeah. No aliens. You know, weird love story with sci-fi elements.
2: Uh-huh. Proof it's, that the tale is in the telling, I suppose.
0: Yes, definitely. But I mean, I really enjoyed this movie mostly because. It sort of fights you every time you think you know that it's going to come out in like a sci-fi button. So somebody like me that is used to seeing his sci-fi narratives, you know, only go as weird as something like Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, it's interesting to see Under the Skin that is able to have like this much humor. Um, I saw at the very full theater and the audience is very participatory with gasps and giggles, but not in a disruptive way like, you know, a drunken college student audience would woo at Scarlett Johansson's boobs, but at a, you know, nice reveal like every time. So you were alone doing that in the theater. (laughs) Yeah, that was was, was just me.
2: I think you and even probably an audience full of drunken college kids could agree that there is, you would be hard pressed to find a less... Sexy, a traditionally sexy way of presenting Scarlett Johansson naked on film than what Jonathan Glazer finds.
0: Well, I mean, by the time the movie ends, yes. But otherwise, this movie is like sort of visually very stunning, both in how it jumps back and forth from very, very stark black and white things to weird color curves when Scarlett Johansson's sort of looking at her new skin uh, by the light of a heat lamp and then the beginning opening sequence, which is either the creation of the eye or the universe or both. And it's really sort of an amazing – it's interesting. I haven't seen photography that I was this curious about, uh, like, how it was done since I think, like, the fountain, which actually used micro photography for macro effects. So, well, I can
2: tell you a little bit about how yes, please the do. effects were achieved. But I think first we could we could set a little bit of – a little bit of uh there table is story the to describe. Oh yeah. yeah, I guess I, I mean, jumped the, way ahead. Yeah. I mean so um essentially what this movie is about, and really the the keyword there is essentially, because <laughs> um this movie is about what it's about. I mean it, it's it's certainly about its uh its subtext. What is under the skin, if you will. The the plot such as it is is really just <laughs> uh, <laughs> table setting for what <laughs> the movie is trying to explore. <laughs> um as I think is clear from how uh, aggressively Jonathan Glazer cut out everything that would, uh, you know, make this a story-driven film to begin with. But essentially, the movie begins, and I think you know, th- there's been some back and forth about how clear this is. But I've seen the film twice now, and from what I've talked to, was uh, an audience thing with Jonathan Glazer. Whatever, uh, I you can't say for certain, but I my interpretation is that the movie begins with Scarlett Johansson, who is. Absolutely, beyond a shadow, without an alien uh, coming to Earth, she, you hear her learning, uh, wrapping her mouth around sort of the English language. There is one; the most mysterious element is how she acquires her clothes. There is a, uh, essentially, there's another woman who is uh, incapacitated. And crying. And there's a man who drives a motorcycle around Scotland, where all this film takes place, uh, who we at first believe is sort of Scarlett Johansson's nameless protagonist, Minder. He's sort of her. Uh, her, her busy man. He cleans up her mess. Uh, he drives... Anyway, but uh, the name that is given to her in IMDb is Laura, but it is never once mentioned in the film. And the name of the book was Iserly, so I don't know where Laura is coming from. But uh, essentially, the movie, for the first 45 minutes or so, is Scarlett Johansson driving a van uh, in and around Glasgow and interacting via, foot- via um, hidden cameras that are placed all around this van with a series of men whom she interacts with uh, and is very flirtatious with and has a posh British accent um, and a thick black wig. And some of the men are non-actors, while others are actors that you are probably not going to realize unless you've been recognized, rather, unless you've been watching a lot of sort of rough-and-tumble UK cinema over the past few years. Um, and, I, I mean, what a what a difficult movie to set up.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't, I'm not yeah. sure... I, I think it's okay to say that she's seeking out men for what seems like nefarious purposes. Well, the, the
2: fates yeah. of the men <laughs> would suggest that her purposes are initially nefarious, uh, but uh, I don't know if – it's hard to ascribe them a – emotional motive. I mean, it seems that there is a motive of some kind where, uh, they are, you don't, feel,
1: don't feel like the vibe up, of yeah. the, the, predatory vibe is it, somewhat it is important here.
2: It is overwhelmingly predatory. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's um,
1: important. It doesn't matter what really the end right. is.
2: Right. I mean, and, and it is, but the emotional context is important because some of the most pivotal moments in the film is she sort of, I mean, it's, it's hardly the simple story of a woman sort of, or this creature rather in the form of a woman, uh, Recognizing her humanity and sort of becoming good, and then either being benefiting from that or being punished from it—I shall not reveal which—but uh, it, it's not quite that simple. Um, although moments of kindness uh, are very formative to the story, there's one part that you saw memed to death last year, where she falls down in the middle of a street in Glasgow, and a handful of non-actors who were not familiar—how did, did I miss that? I don't um, remember that being memed. <laughs> When did that? When Remember was that a meme? there was this there was this great screenshot of her. You can look it up right now of her like face planting on the street and people. They were like doing involved like birds into it. I don't know. It was a thing for like a day. Uh, <laughs> Hail Hydra. <laughs> it was the new Leonardo DiCaprio walk. Was, Is it, that it? <laughs> it? It was like the uh, indie Hail Hydra exactly. But uh, the I uh, um, you know and there's a bunch of non actors rides to rescue and I think that's a, a critical moment in the movie. Um, I mean, that's definitely the, the way she interacts with people around her, especially when you contrast it with her uh, behavior towards a family in trouble earlier in the film uh, is definitely very important.
0: Yes, I mean, to go off on a tangent that may or may not be related, but you guys as film critics might be able to help me understand why my story keeps coming back to this, but I keep thinking about this girl I dated who doesn't listen to the podcast, but I'm still (laughs) not going to give her name, who told me that she first realized she could use her sexual prowess to get things done in the first or second grade, and I remember this like warping my mind because you don't even really know what weapon you're playing around with at that age and to think that you have like some sort of command over it is just something that to me would completely warp, you know, my sort of idea of what sexuality would be. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think that, you know, certainly as Patches is saying, this predatory vibe and the the predator becoming the prey ultimately is, is crucial what the movie's doing, but I think, Part of its mystique is how uh, oblique it is. I mean, it's very resistant to narrow readings. I mean, I think I've read readings. um, There was the Christy Puchko had a very interesting article about uh, about rape and uh, the movie being, uh, am I remembering that correctly? The where can
1: people? Of, I think they can find that on the Frisky. Is that correct? Or I think it was where, the where Mary was that? Sue. Oh, Mary, Mary Sue, Sue. Mary Sue. Uh, okay.
2: You know, I think it's also a story of assimilation in in the classic sense, and how. Um, you know, the illusion of assimilation, how it's ultimately, people are ultimately resistant to that. I think it is, in its broadest definition, a really unnerving and resonant portrait of what it is to be human, the human condition all told. I think my first enact, my first reaction when I saw it as the last film that I saw in, at the Toronto Film Festival last September, and it was the 34th film I'd seen in eight days and clear in away my favorite, was uh, that it was this really sort of moving portrait of loneliness um which i think and i think it's all these things i don't think that any of the readings are mutually exclusive and seeing the film again confirmed some of my initial takeaway but also made me more receptive to what other people have been saying um, and i think that in that respect it it's a movie that will live with me for a while because it will uh, i think always be able to accommodate Whatever I'm bringing to it at the moment. Well, I think yeah, I think
1: that's what's interesting about being vague with the plot. Like we could get more uh, explanation for her extraterrestrial behavior, origins, or mission. Whatever she's there to do, we get just enough to believe what's going on. Um, it doesn't seem to be a theatrical production in any way, where we're like really changing gender roles or something like that, or you know switching bodies. It's not bodies. species. <laughs> or species. Well, species is well, kind of in the other direction, where it's literal <laughs> and it's just about the plot, obviously. But um, here we get enough of the motivation and and understanding of the characters. But then we can kind of project. Um, what the gender themes going on in this movie. I think we need to know a little bit about her character in order to feel like, oh, well, she is preying upon men, perhaps in the same way a young person would be sexual uh, when they're first discovering that feeling uh, and indulging in it. Or maybe she's she's almost like a man in some ways. She's, she can be, she's just free sexually in a way that women her age normally wouldn't be. And these men just come to her like get in my van in the middle of the night who would do that well when it's a woman going after a man it doesn't seem normal it seems like yeah that must be a safe thing to do I I find that very interesting
2: it invites invites discussion about image and celebrity and all these things I mean because you're you're making your very pointed statement when you take a internationally famous movie star like charles johansson who is not quite at like a julia roberts level but i think uh none of us would have a problem calling famous and well see that's uh,
1: interesting because i did not know this before seeing the movie um i didn't know it was kind of a hidden camera thing and i guess you can tell from the cinematography a little bit i mean it still looks very good even when there are cameras planted in the cars and that sort of thing um but i I wasn't really privy camera it's it's i wasn't privy to it uh, well, it almost high. is the the scene where she fall, falls down and people try and help her. Almost is a candid camera scene.
2: That's the oh, no, moment I mean, no, where I'm, I'm like, "What is the, going on here?" The aesthetic. I mean, you're saying that it doesn't sure. look like a hidden camera vibe, and I think that you know certainly if you're aware of how they filmed it, there are certain shots, particularly the low angle ones in the van, that you would say, "Okay, I know why I'm seeing this shot. It's because that's where they well, have I the think... camera, etc." But it's it's more of like a Kurosami meets um, a very high end you know professional production. There's no point at which it feels. Sort of amateurish. We've come a long way from from the right you know, the and, and hidden camera,
1: natural. And not knowing about device. it makes that opening kind of... It's a little too slow for me. or It's treading the same ter- territory for an extended period of time where I think I got the point. And at a certain point, I wanted to get to this kind of second half of the movie where um, she's devoured a few men and she's met a few men and now she's feeling challenged by them. I felt like that opening mission without enough information... If you're not going to tease me a little plot, then I feel like every man she meets should really complicate the situation. And I think it kind of Ooh,
0: you don't trudges along
1: in the beginning. I, think, I mean, it, it eventually I, gets there. I mean, it eventually having gets having
0: been really close to it time-wise, I'm pretty sure each man had a very distinct story motion as to what we were supposed to gather from their interaction.
2: Yeah, I, <sighs> I mean, definitely. I think that's true. And also, there's something, as you can sort of tell from the, the score by Mika Levy, which is uh, – far out as the kids say (laughs) but you haven't heard it you should give it give it a chance Um, it is it is noise there is uh yeah there's, there's something you know very cyclical and hypnotic about the flow of the movie it's reflected structurally and i think every detail as dave was saying um the slightest difference the slightest tweak into what she is getting out of these men and what these men are revealing about her intentions to us becomes riveting for me because um we're given so little, but it's all so startling. And I think even changing in, changes in venues become these complete sort of game changers. I mean, there's a, this amazing scene, uh, which again they filmed with all you know non actors who just happen to be at this club one night, uh, where she is, you know, tracking one one particular guy. Um, and you know i think how it's such a fascinating one another one of the things the film does that's so fascinating is how people find one another how they form these these groups arbitrarily or otherwise and the reasons for them and there's this great shot leading into the club sequence where uh, the Scarlett Johansson character is caught up in like a gaggle of women who who like n- she there's it's like a, my beautiful Katamari where they like add her to them in order to bolster their ranks. And there it, it, you can yeah. see on and Scarlett not- Johansson's face her discomfort and like trying to figure out what this group structure means. And-
0: I was paying close attention to that scene. It's very intentionally mixed. So there is not an intelligible sentence from the mm-hmm. moment that gaggle of women shows up until she gets out of the club. And it is brilliant just in terms of how it communicates that sort of energy. And I don't want to switch gears too much, but I do want to go back to what patches was saying, which was that something that sort of brought me through, um, the first movement of the film where she's, you know, you know, hunting these guys is a scene that we sort of mentioned at the beach and sort of how, that scene unfolds when you're looking for something else and something, I guess, spoiler-free, something that I wasn't expecting to happen happens very quietly, and then you sort of lock into what Scarlett Johansson's character is doing, and what you're left with is the emotional resonance of what happened sort of to the side. And -hmm. it's sort of like, as soon as that, happened for me i realized that i wasn't watching something that was going to be clumsy like species i knew i had to look beyond <laughs> i had to look beyond the predator the i angle. hope
1: from minute one that you knew you weren't yeah. watching something akin well, to species i mean but
0: like in terms of like is this just going to be about you know, turning species. the tables on men from like now there's a woman predator because there's up until that point in the movie it seems like it could be that way there's a montage of you know single men walking around on the street and you're like oh this is about you know turning the male gaze on men but then after that scene and after there's been more development then we get a montage of single women you know walking down the street and then it starts to sort of shift more towards about loneliness and sort of sexuality without any like love core relationship at it which I really enjoyed
2: it becomes really painful because and I hope I'm not revealing too much but I mean she makes the character makes attempts to um, sort of come to terms with what she hopes or feels is the sort of nascent humanity and she's just so cruelly rejected uh, by (laughs) by these attempts that no I mean I'm not talking about what you're talking about? I'm talking oh, about okay. before that. Uh, I mean, there's this this great scene where she tries to eat a slice of cake, and um, it doesn't go oh, well. And it's like the, the she tries it's like to David eating spinach in AI exactly. or something. <laughs> Oh, I thought you meant me in real life. That's or David and Spinach. spinach. AI, I think is uh, I think you know, Beyond the Black Rainbow is a helpful reference point, especially yeah. aesthetically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think AI is also, if you were to stew AI and species and Beyond the Black Rainbow together, you, you wouldn't be too far off the mark.
0: Thank God someone I, did because you know it works. I somehow. had just
2: uh
1: it, it wasn't too long after I saw Nymphomaniac Volume One and Two um, that I caught under the skin, and I couldn't help but think about. Nymphomaniac. And I, I, I look forward to seeing Under the Skin again because I think that movie kind of warped my perspective a little. Or at least I was challenging both films against one another. Um, not aesthetically or form-wise, just like how they were approaching two very similar themes. Um, and for me, Under the Skin ends up like shifting gears halfway through so dramatically without this kind of like graceful motivation, um, which makes some sense. I mean, it's supposed to be a very jarring film and suppose, you know, she feels this emotion. She's, she's almost been poisoned by like human feeling and and suddenly she feels a drive. And whereas like Nymphomaniac almost has that same arc, but spread out over four hours. And I, As as much as I love the imagery in Under the Skin, so poignant, so so startling, uh, I just it's not as graceful and it maybe
2: not dig as deep as I hope it would, and I I do feel warped by Nymphomaniac. You don't feel? I mean, first of all, I'll say that I think comparisons between the two are totally valid. I wrote uh, an article that I've talked about on the podcast before about loneliness in the films of Lars von Trier on The Dissolve, and it was funny because seeing uh, seeing Under the Skin again right after writing that article, I was like. You know, I wanted to write about Under the Skin, but I was like, I feel like I just did this. (laughs) So much of what I had written, at least in my own head, could be applied to Under the Skin. But um, I really don't agree with what Patrick's just saying, certainly about the gracefulness of how this movie transitions. And, and, you know, I think as we got from the top of the show, I think, you know, thin is the last thing I'd call this movie. But I think there's a certain scene involving a... uh, an actor who has neurofibrosis, I believe is the correct diagnosis. I don't know. I
1: uh, thought
0: it was... Uh, no, oh, I'm not sure.
2: Neurofibromatosis. The way
0: out of this conversation is to ask people to Google it if they want to be responsible. Uh,
2: yes. Anyway, there's there's a man, one of the men she picks up, uh, at least you would, you'd you been conditioned to assume, is uh, an actor with uh, prosthesis on his face, uh, but I learned afterwards is there was no such thing. It was just an actual guy uh, who is, I believe this is not his first movie. He has acted in in other things before, but I think uh, there is a lot happening in that scene. And I think it really serves as the fulcrum of the movie as a whole. I think it's really where you go over the hill and things change. I mean, that scene ends in a very unexpected way. And I love that. I mean, that's my favorite part of the
0: movie. Yeah. That's really interaction.
1: And
2: the most interesting thing that I took out of my second viewing of the movie was thinking about how that scene reflects the changing dynamic between Scarlett Johansson's character and her motorcycle buddy who I saw as a sub- sort of subservient helper type the first time around but realized – and this may be clear to most people when they see it the first time and maybe I was just too caught up in what was happening to, to notice. But um, he takes on a – I mean she becomes the prey for more than one person. I mean he, 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 t- he takes on a role where he is not doing her bidding uh, as much as I first thought but is um, – is seems responsible for her and uh, going to collect her which opened doors to the mythology for me that uh you know i didn't take up too much thought working out because i understand that it's irrelevant but it's fun in its own way and i liked how little they offered i think that uh the keys are there to really let you go nuts see
0: for me i haven't seen nymphomaniac parts one and two so i can't speak directly to patches this thing but to me it's so interesting choosing to have the story from the perspective of an alien and saying very early on thematically that you're not necessarily dealing with reproduction in any way that we would think about sex so you have like a intelligence that doesn't understand why the way that it looks is having this effect and just knows to do it and as soon as it finds some way to connect with something that is so opposite looking to what it thinks it needed to be to serve its purpose it starts trying to explore itself and humanity and I think what it finds is that if you're not dealing with emotions like love or pure, you know, biological needs like reproduction, that, you know, modern society to a certain degree has weaponized all sorts of sexual interactions to where they're like there are these various power layers that, you know, she's not ready to deal with. Or at least that's, well, how that's I, a I'm that's I'm a getting thing it like, I felt like such... out of the movie. So I'm getting, I'm getting feeling better about how what it was.
1: I, I feel such sadness by the end of this movie that, you know, if you incorporate emotion or love into your life, or if you feel a little thing, uh humanity at its at its bleakest will destroy you. Yeah. I mean, especially sexually speaking, there's just no room for any for vulnerability because someone will destroy you, especially men to women. I mean, it just makes me and this was after Nymphomaniac where I left feeling the exact same way. It's just like this uh, platonic nihilism in some way, like men and women cannot be in the same room uh, unless women have their guard up because men will destroy them. I just, I just felt horrible afterward. And Under the Skid is a beautiful movie, and I think it really succeeds in, in driving home those points, especially in the last half hour. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. But um, there, it was it was a turbulent experience for me, not as graceful or, uh, or astounding across the entire arc. Um, but, uh, David, as you mentioned, I think... Um, that scene with the the man with his uh, his facial problem uh, deformity <laughs> I, I mean i see the i see the film switching gears there you're trying to
2: finesse it but i think that I just makes it sound worse
1: <laughs> i know i know i c- i couldn't believe that that was um that was that was real that was a real guy i mean i there was an amazing article on the guardian i think uh an interview with him which was just very compelling he was just so happy to be able to do the movie and um, oh, yeah, I put himself on long screen long it's it's a really Beautiful uh, article. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to call it clunky because Glazer has such a vision here um, and it's meticulous. I, I know that every piece of this puzzle is the way he wants it to be. I can just tell that from watching the movie. Uh, I, I don't know. I just wanted to dig deeper. I don't, I'm not saying the film is thin. Uh, there's a lot of substance here. I just wish I, – I kept wanting to go further and perhaps that is me chomping off a similar – Um, inquiry in my own mind uh, after Nymphomaniac and I'm looking for more or a new angle. uh, I think they echo a similar theme and but uh, certainly the end of Under the Skin is a violent uh, array of imagery. And especially in going back to the beginning of this conversation, the opening in this film is incredible. Like I love, I love all the imagery of the beginning, the kind of 2001.
0: Yeah, lights um, and circles and...
1: Yeah, and talking, like the, the yeah. speech, learning speech. I love all that stuff. And you're right, David, already- the hints of mythology is... Uh, or is kind of
2: and they shot really fun. Uh, they shot some of that stuff and then cut it out. So, I mean, they definitely, uh, they had grounded it in something that is wider than what we see, but ultimately found it to be irrelevant. And Dave, what we were just talking about at the very beginning about how they, the effects, uh, it's another Conversation for another time, and obviously, I only know so much. But what I do know is the sort of instantly iconic uh, scenes in the black room where Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. lures the men uh, were mostly done practically. I mean, they had a giant room filled with this like hideous black goo, and really, they, yeah, and the men <laughs> would follow her and walk. It was augmented with. And sort of like varnished with CG when it was all said and done but they would have the men sort of walk until their heads were completely covered in this black goop and I guess you know that, reminds, where me, she,
0: didn't the, drown. that reminds me of KY Jelly and printer oh, ink from oh my Star my Trek what? The Next Generation the oh. black goo that sucks right the Riker porn in. parody
2: oh I see no and no the, the real one article about Adam Pearson is in the Daily Mail not the Guardian Sorry. I mean, a little lower brow but still very much <laughs> worth your time <laughs> it's, still, it's still very nice <laughs> no the article no, no judgment on the article but speaking the, uh,
1: of the special effects the scene where one of the men we see one of the men have their skin extracted underwater is just like oh my god that is the creepiest Mm -hmm. yeah that that was great that's scary motherfucking thing
0: that's the antithesis to the bag in the wind for american beauty we've been waiting for and not knowing it
1: (laughs) just just to wrap up our conversation on under the skin um we we had uh last week talked about uh, discussing an article that popped up on ew about this film, a review that much people were going crazy about, um, that kind of focused on Scarlett Johansson taking this role and being kind of artsy fartsy or something. Um, I want to blow past the actual article and ask you about Scarlett Johansson in this film, who I thought was breathtaking. I mean, what what? Ha- this is not just uh, the Mars attacks. I'm wearing a, a fake human skin and wig uh, role. This is this is like next-level blank face in some yeah. ways. Yeah. And I, I want to get into that a little bit because I, I, think, I think there's some real astonishing it, work here.
2: It's such an interesting counterpoint or performance in Her, uh, you know, which is, is all no body and all voice, and so much of this uh, performance is dependent upon her body and the way that it's shot and lit in particular. I think uh, people are going to be very surprised, particularly when you hold it up against the very airbrushed look of uh, Natasha, Natasha Romanoff, Romanoff in uh, <laughs> Captain America. And but,
0: the, um, yeah, the iron-flattened hair all the time. I mean, I think brave is one of those
2: disgusting adjectives that is used to, about performances uh, often and usually... And uh, Pixar movies about bears. <laughs> and, and,
0: right, uh. <laughs> and uh,
2: usually baselessly. And I think, you know, you have to understand that brave can is dependent upon context and that we're not comparing the performance of an actor to, uh, you know, somebody dying for their country or <laughs> anything like that. but uh, Nice padding uh, there. Good. As, as far as these sort of things and star turns go, um, if this is the kind of performance that can inspire the drivel that Entertainment Weekly wrote about it, um, it, it does so for good reason. I mean, this is a truly brave performance in this particular context. I mean, not only... Um, not only you know putting herself in a situation where she was interacting with these non-actors and getting naked and all that junk, but also I mean the first part at least is significant. But also how transparently this confronts her own image as an actress and uh, the function she has for the world at large and how uh, her, op- her effect on her audience and and power and lack thereof. I mean I think it's all uh, it's all so I don't know it's it, it's very. It, in conversation with you know what she's doing i think it's it's really incredible stuff and I, a, uh, I think she's to be commended for it
0: i had a similar feeling when after this movie as i did after budapest hotel ended in feeling that i'd seen uh, artists like golden age like i had realized it while i was in it and i sort of feel like we're in the reconnaissance of johannesson <laughs>
1: You'll have to come up with a word for that.
0: The, the Jude Awakening, <laughs> as I decided after seeing Tom Hemingway. Sure, is that coming up? Great, awesome. Uh, that's out already. It's old news. No, one uh,
1: I, I just think it's amazing to see an actor like start. You know, it's kind of a blank palette. She arrives to Earth, and she's just this one color in a way and to the the arc here as as jumbled as i think it is at times personally um i do see this kind of fluid it's like trickling into her this human emotion and the way that it slowly does over the course of the movie like every every scene the way she looks at things changes or the way she would approach um, any object with her hand or something would has changed. And I think that slow burn evolution is kind of an incredible thing to do as a performer, especially because, I i mean, I don't know about the production. Maybe they shot it in order, but if they didn't, that's something to like, like where am I on the spectrum right now in terms of feeling human emotion and not being a blank slate anymore? That's commendable. Uh, and just to uh, take Katie's part in this conversation, she'll never be... Uh, nominated for an Oscar, so get out of oh, here,
0: boo. Scarlett
1: Johansson. Sorry, <laughs> wow,
2: that was, that's <laughs> cool, to <like> Katie. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I think that this is as interesting uh, a performance as you're going to see from an actress. I think of any caliber or degree of fame this year. I mean, it's really, uh, it's really fascinating stuff, and it. I think her willingness to do it. It obviously, the narrative of who she is as an actress thing has been distorted. I think people forget the kind of roles that she was playing when she sort of came into the public light. Uh, and, but I think that this is a great – as great as really could possibly be of an affirmation as to what interests her and how sort of uh, – what, what makes her tick. And uh, you can do the Marvel junk in this uh, sort of stuff as well. Ouch. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty wonderful. I mean I, this is my – I mean it's only April – um, and, you know, my optimism has it that I would hope that I couldn't say this uh, by the end of the year. But this is probably my favorite movie of the year so far.
0: Really, really um, got under your skin. huh? <laughs> it really got <laughs> under
2: my skin. Woo. And it'll be expanding wider. Right now it's just in New York and L.A., I think, and uh, maybe a few other cities. But I know it's going to. It's, it did really well here last weekend and so it's going to be in places like Austin and Utah and Chicago and whatever, so check it out Invading a theater near you
1: and ripping off the skin of every man in town Soon Soon The why don't you tell us a little about Only Lovers Left Alive, the new film from Jim Jarmusch. None of us oh, have man. seen it because we tried. We've tried to see it, but uh, have been barred for some reason. But you have prevailed. And you love this film. Oh, man, do I love this film. Not. Uh, there are some people who really do not. So I'm curious about how I mean, that...
2: I, I mean, it's, it's, it's true of... Which is, uh, yeah, true of all I'm of his films. Uh, I'd say, you know, if you're painting a picture here, that the. I, my, my sense is that most people seem to enjoy this movie very much i don't think I'm, it's not like a, a great gatsby situation where i'm you know, really taking a <laughs> you do stand. not stand alone you do not stand uh, alone no i think most people really enjoy this i think this is actually my favorite jim jarmusch film it's uh wow tilda switten and tom hiddleston play vampires who uh she is much older than he is but they have both been alive for at least several hundred years uh she lives in tangiers he lives in detroit uh you know one is one of the oldest Coherent cities around, and the other is a, a ruin. Um, and the newest they, ruin, they uh, the newest ruin, right? This is certainly relevant. They are married, but they live apart because they have the luxury of time, uh, being immortal. And he, although he is, uh, he is feeling suicidal, um, and so he makes some idle threats. And she hops on an overnight plane uh, with her gloves and her trunk full of books, and uh, goes over to lays around in his. Uh, dilapidated mansion on the outskirts of Detroit to listen to some great drone music and to hear him play some of his own um, and it's really sort of a hangout film in that respect. But I think it's uh, um, I'm not going to be much good at 11 o'clock uh, at night at, at articulating this. But I I if I can pin my own stuff. I had a, a nice lunch with <laughs> Jarmusch in December. I wrote about it for the Guardian. It talks. It's pretty much all I, I tried to pack it into my. You know the the of what I think about this movie, but essentially, I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's very much a commentary on culture and this this feeling that everyone certainly you know people of certain stripes that I can relate to always feel as if we're at sort of at the end of the road um and what it is to sort of get that spark back. It's like how how vampire how very like cool, culturally sensitive vampires got their groove back um is is in the most reductive, broadest strokes what this movie is. Well so you doing. can relate to this. Oh yeah. Um instead of and, sucking
1: blood, you suck ambient, but it's basically the same right.
2: thing. And there's uh there it, it has a lot of great commentary and a very sort of organic way in its unhurried sort of way about uh, the value of culture I mean Jarmusch is on record as saying how much he despises hierarchical culture and there's a scene in this movie where they're taking a tour of Detroit at night and uh, they see Jack, the house where Jack Black uh, Jack White grew up <laughs> <laughs> and wow. Tilda Swinton's 3,000 year old character named Eve says without, with not a hint of irony or sarcasm that she loves Jack White which I think is really the ultimate validation of an artist is to have someone who's been alive to hear all of them uh you know say that she's a fan of Hmm. your work uh and then the movie takes on this new dimension when uh her wild younger sister played by mia wasikowska in another really wonderful role i think she continues to be one of the most under the radar interesting actresses around uh and she has this little thing with uh with adam who's tom hiddleston's character's uh gopher who's a human who's played by um uh what's his face anton yelkin and uh, uh, I mean, the movie's a lot of fun. It, there's this great thing with John Hurt, who's playing Shakespeare or uh, Marlowe, as it goes by here. Um, although Jarmusch's affects the film is is uh, one of those who believes that Shakespeare was a bit of a fraud and that uh, other people were responsible for his work, and that is uh, brought up. But I mean, I, I I think this movie is just like it's the kind of thing. It's it's like an opium den. I mean, you just want to lie back and let it wash over you. Well, here's, I had. Here- uh, Here's why it sounds
0: interesting to me is because I'm excited that, you know, filmmakers who know how to use symbolism and metaphor are finally reclaiming vampires from fucking Twilight. You know? Like, (laughs) there's such a great thing to talk about being... Deathless and what that allows you to do and how that connects to the human condition. And like you were saying about the Jack White thing is an interesting facet of it. All so much better than who you actually fall well, in love with. You
1: need to see vamps. What. You need to see Amy Heckerling's vamps. No,
0: I have seen vamps, which I enjoyed, but it came of it at the wrong angle for me, where it's Fair like enough. vampires are supposed to be this thing that we could use as a metaphor, but we fear them because there's that extra something there about a it. a
1: metaphor in vamps. Um, I, I, David, I did I you see is. The Limits of control
2: i did see the limits of control and what i think about the limits of control is that it is really uh more than anything sort of a codex for all of jim jarmusch's films it's sort of like a a textbook and for some people it can be about as much fun to read as a textbook uh but it's certainly especially if you see a movie like i mean only lovers left alive is is about as accessible as his movies tend to get but if you've seen if if you've just watched like dead man or you know, permanent vacation or something like that. And you would like a little bit of context. I think that, um, Hmm. the limits of control is, is the best, uh, you know, articulation of what he's trying to do as a whole. Um, but, it certainly not, doesn't hit the pleasure centers quite like Only Lovers Left Alive does, which connects. I mean, I think what The Limits of Control really uh, proved revelatory for me was that um, Jim Jarmusch's films are so much less plot driven, than they are these sort of constellations of ideas. They're, they're connecting all these things and looking for sort of the, the this how synapses can be closed across gaps that. Seemingly are miles apart, or you would never think to put together. Um, and I think how conversant his films are and ideas, for me at least, uh, is correlated to how much I enjoy them. And. Uh, Only lovers left alive has the kind of premise as a lot of Jarmusch films do, but this one probably more than any of them beforehand, where they can really just sit back and let these ideas take root and and intermingle. And uh, it's so funny, and it's it's so you really care about their relationship. Um, the relationship. Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston both, but especially Tilda Swinton, are just so fucking great. I um,
1: um it doesn't it yeah. doesn't sound like Only Lovers Left Alive may fit this bill, but I know. I mean, I I feel like Jarmusch's early 80s films, Stranger than Paradise, Down by Law, sort of mystery train, they're kind of like rambling. I don't I mean in a good way. Um, mm-hmm. and and kind of just finding this environment and watching these people kind of stew in that place. I don't know if you would agree with that, but um or or if Only Lovers Left Alive fits that bill in any
2: way. Uh I mean it's definitely it's shaggy. And I say I don't you know I think that I, I don't think either shaggy nor rambling are in and of itself bad things, but this no. is purely classification here that I, I think there is rambling Jarmouche, which has its own charms, but this is shaggy. It's a little mm. bit more contained and tight. There are, uh, um, it runs about two hours, but the, it, it always feels like there's forward momentum, even though it's a movie that's sort of about the sort of cultural innervation and inertia. Um, and it really uh, it really climaxes powerfully, and I think the end is just such a satisfying button. I mean it's certainly – as much as you get that that uh, sort of relaxed feeling to the whole thing, uh, it definitely has a an forward-moving energy of its own. Well,
1: I, I bring up rambling and then throw to Dave to see if Dave agrees with me that David Gordon Green's Joe is a rambling film. Because it kind of actually reminds me, now that we're on the topic of Jarmusch, of those early 80s Jarmusch films that are just like, let's walk around a crazy place and meet crazy people and, and
0: oh, see feel it out. That's interesting because I would link it more to Under the Skin that we talked about previously in terms Whoa. of a movie that's adapted from a novel and uses a lot of local color as its cast to tell a story about Southern masculinity. Um, Yeah, we're talking about David Gordon Green's Joe, which is released this weekend. I was lucky enough to see a screening at BAM that included a conversation with David Gordon Green. And one of my co-workers at my day job uh, did some, uh, I guess, music arrangement or something on it. So I apologize that apparently somebody has died in my neighborhood. (laughs) It's Joe. Joe, probably. It's it's about Tay... Ty Sheridan, not Tay Sheridan, Ty Sheridan, who was the kid in Mud, who I loved him in Mud. He's back in a very <laughs> similar movie, um, playing a boy who is sort of trapped in his family where his dad is a drunk and his mom is some sort of meth addict and his sister's seen some horrible abuse. She, although we don't really.
1: Sister doesn't even speak.
0: Doesn't speak, it's, but they imply that she stopped speaking because something horrible happened to her. Whatever. Not really important. Because this was called from a novel, there's a whole bunch of characters where you get sort of glimpses of them. Things like Joe has an ex-wife, but they barely ever mention it. She's just in one scene where they pull up to a stoplight together and sort of glare at each other. And Joe has a grandson, but you don't learn until, like, Act 3. Because Joe is a sad man with anger issues who is always getting in trouble with the law and always thinks that he's standing up for the right Um, But because he has these anger issues and this law issue has decided to sort of collapse inside of himself. So he's working these very... meager, menial menial jobs for a meager wage. In this case, he's running a crew that poisons trees so that uh, <laughs> logging companies can come back in and plant more profitable trees to cut down. What a gig. Yeah, and he runs across this kid, and he sees something of himself in this kid, and Joe decides that he's going to try to make this kid's better life better by giving him a job, which tumbles into getting involved in this kid's life, and Joe has to decide if he's essentially going to be Shane from the movie Shane or not. And that's how uh, Joe unfolds. But oddly
1: enough, like that is only I feel like that's a third of the movie. Like it's sprinkled throughout the movie, but that's really only a third of the fr- thrust of this film that like the rest I of mean, it is yeah. really just watching Joe meet all these different people who are very strange and who all kind of complicate his position in the world in different ways. He's helpful or he's a criminal or who knows what his role is. He he doesn't know and he's displaced. And I kept thinking of it and I'm. this made people like raised their eyebrows at me, but it reminded me of some sort of like Southern Gothic Napoleon dynamite. Now I hate Napoleon dynamite. I do not like that film, but because of the eclectic cast and because of just like the rambling nature of it and how funny it ends up being, not at the expense of these extremely Southern people, but because of how unique they are and how they have their own form of humor, like Joe can laugh at how absurd it is that this guy, you know, one of his buddies and his mom are trying to skin this uh, a deer that they hit on the road or something, and they, they're just terrible at skinning this deer, and it's so funny and has nothing to do with the movie uh, or
2: at least the narrative drive of helping the plot, Ty Sheridan,
0: quote unquote, yeah. I mean the, the It's funny because when ahead.
2: you say like a Jim Jarmusch movie is rambling, I'm like, sign me up. But when you say a David Gordon Green movie is rambling, like I could not be less interested in seeing this movie. And I know that a lot of people like it. Um and then Nicolas Cage, who I I like, but I'm probably more interested in now when he's uh, doing garbage than I am when well, <laughs> he's see, that's actually doing interesting things. But he uh but yeah, I mean the idea of an uh unshapen, uh, sort of aimless David Gordon Green movie, uh it sounds like a pretty dire time, especially when I'm barely getting through the. Uh, I mean, I I want to argue against uh, the, shape, the movies, shapeless the shapeless part. Pables.
0: I want to argue against the shapeless part. <laughs> in t- if we're like comparing, you know, all three of these movies in terms of which one has a plot. I've seen two of them, and Joe definitely has the most amount of plot. Like A leads to B, and he makes this decision here because he was just in that scene. But for me, what was really nice to see about it is, you know, we've seen both David Gordon Green and Joe. Sorry, not Joe. Nicolas Cage uh, wander into, you know, these huge blockbusters and sort of lose what really made them special when they were smaller people willing to take risks. And I think this is a movie that sees them both having fun with each other. And I think that that is enough to sprinkle on this very classic, you know, southern story about masculinity and losing losing yourself in inside your uh the fear of the danger and damage that you're going to cause to everybody else yeah david so, uh, i
1: wouldn't be afraid of a, a rambling david gordon green film because i don't think it's aimless i i think it's really uh anchored by nicholas
0: cage well i mean and, your and highness green was a rambling like, david gordon what green was that? Film. your highness was a rambling david gordon green film. oh my god uh, that's a, a nightmare has a focus yeah but i mean it's, um, it's, at, le- at
1: least here green's reigning Uh, Nicolas Cage in, he's like channeling the crazy into a different like a spectrum of emotions that are provoked by different types of people, you know, like one woman wants to sleep with him and another woman, um, Yeah, like you mentioned, his ex-wife is kind of creating this friction. And the police are all after him, always on his ass. And, you know, does he turn to drinking or does he turn to fatherhood? I I, I found it very provocative. And, um, of course, shot by Tim Orr, David Gordon Green's longtime cinematographer, looks beautiful. The music, David Wingo, again, is kind of incredible. And uh, I, I just like the full package. And yet the person sitting next to me at the screening after we left hated it. No. terrible film. Well, terrible I have a little film. story so, for
0: those of us that like stories. Uh Gary Poulter, the guy who plays Wade or the father of Tay Diggs Gary. G-Dog. G-Dog, that's right. Uh G-Dog is a real homeless person. And uh G Dog <laughs> is his was his email address that David Gordon Green uh got in contact with him. And Nicolas Cage and G-Dog sort of found this antagonistic relationship together. And on the last day of filming, uh, G-Dog still was pretty much homeless, so Nick Cage told him, you know, hang on for one year and, you know, people are going to be calling you to play the saloon operator in every Western because he just has this particular look about him and half his ears bitten off. Anyway, uh, G-Dog did not survive to see the final cut of Joe, so it's his only and best performance if that's something, if that's worth seeking out.
1: Well, he's a total asshole in this movie, and it's very sad
0: to <laughs> Yeah, but for, for but a homeless guy it. to be playing so, the villain for, in a, a for Nicolas G-dog. Cage movie, yeah, that's way to go. R.I.P.
1: G-Dog. Um, as, as we tunnel to the end here, David, you and I saw Draft Day. We do not like day. Yeah, football. Draft Day. But we liked drafting. I hate foot. No, no. How no, did this I happen? I hate football. What a dumb fucking sport. <laughs> <laughs> Good okay, I can what? watch and enjoy football. So there's a difference. The oh my god! Stop. he
2: hockey exists in the world.
1: <laughs> I mean, oh my it's, god! It's, Shut move. up. And, and <laughs> anyway and yet you uh, love and yet you love draft day or at least you thoroughly enjoy I, draft day which is total commercial product I, I, because I, NFL is all over it sponsoring it for the first time it's about the it's it's a, it's not even about a sport it's about a component of the NFL that's totally fabricated by them there's no real me, stakes or drama
0: someone tell me in this drafting. isn't the internship because well, what you're describing it's a football is the internship. movie
2: it's a football movie that that finally doesn't have the worst part of all football movies which is football <laughs> um, i mean it's essentially like somebody took the uh the trade scene from Moneyball and sort of unpacked it and candied it with this, you know, commercial gloss, the studio product and spread it over into Yeah, nine. Dave, but Dave will be really, really happy. Pleasant. Dave, Dave
1: yes. will be happy to know that in my review of draft day, I, I mentioned that um, draft day versus Moneyball in like an ideological way is almost like, evolutionists versus creationists because yeah. evolutionists want the facts and they work with numbers and they're analytical and then creationists just believe, you know, in the unknown. And that's what draft day is yeah. all about. You know, you don't need players who I mean, are good. A... Statistically, they just need to have heart and they need to love their families. And that's enough to be a great right. linebacker.
2: Right. I mean, yeah. there's so many silly, silly things in this movie. There so many things that Kevin Coster's character, who is the GM of a uh, the Cleveland Browns investigates <laughs> kind of ridiculous <laughs> uh, character, tri- whatever. But it all works. I mean, it's just, it's it all works. I mean, it all uh, it, the movie does exactly what it intends to do. Why does it work? Right is it just Kevin sure-handed. Costner? Is that is that why? No, I is it think, think, uh, just Kevin uh, it's Costner? A smartly written. It's a smartly written movie. I mean, it's not aiming for the heavens. I mean, it, it knows what it is. Uh, it makes sure the bo- the beats hit, which they do. It's they're all assisted by a very able cast, including uh, our favorite cast member <laughs> Rick the Intern, uh, <laughs> who's played our buddy Griffin Newman. Um, and uh, and I think you know Costner has never been someone who's really interested in me in any way, but I think that he has a real grounded presence here that uh, especially when the movie builds to a thoroughly ridiculous head uh, works. I mean, I think the movie actually gets better the more over the top and unbelievable it becomes because it is really, uh, it's so unmoored in anything vaguely resembling human. Emo- I mean, it's, it's purely this emotionally driven thing. There's no reason or logic to it. Uh, and on those grounds, it works. It's funny. Frank Langella has a hilarious line, which is a, lo- a single line that I thought so funny that it's worth even just mentioning. <laughs> don't don't spoil it. I, I I could never. I want to know um, if someone paid
1: but, uh, them to put that line in. That's how that's how ridiculous. I don't know, maybe, it is.
2: but you know what? That's the upside of uh, product placement, I guess. Uh, but uh, uh, and you know, it was actually interesting knowing, like noticing how much of a commercial it is for the NFL. That you know the fictional gms of very real teams come off as huge assholes in this movie like they are the villains if the movie can even be accused of having such things uh but they're like the the fake gm of jacksonville who is played by pat healy comes off as a completely incompetent heel and like the gms of the seahawks are incompetent i mean or assholes i mean it's uh, uh i can imagine this doing nothing but pissing off very you know passionate fans in certain cities and stoking rivalries but i think you know anything that gets people interested during the off season is probably good for the nfl
1: uh what what do draft day and under the skin have in common both were filmed amongst real audiences or real people i, f- I believe draft day incorporates scenes from the actual draft from last year uh and incorporates it into in radio City. fictional story yeah 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 so last yeah, year mean, they were filming I mean, during the actual f- draft and the I read a story on the AP from a year ago that spoils the ending of this movie. I just thought that was very interesting <laughs> because they announced they but announced also, who, who he picks, and that's the that's the big reveal.
2: <laughs> but there's also um, the footage is not so seamlessly interwoven. I mean, like there are obviously blown up TV shots of the inside of Radio City Music Hall uh, that don't quite match, but whatever, it's all good. <laughs> um, so
1: we we were both fans of Draft Day. It's funny. It's it's. A sports movie through and through every trope imaginable, but it sticks the landing, I guess. Chadwick just, Bossman. I'm, I'm a fan of him. I, I'm, I'm ready just for him to recommend four liked.
0: movies? I th- I think <laughs> Almost.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Let me cap it and make sure that we don't recommend every movie that comes out this weekend. Rio 2 comes out this weekend. A horrible, horrible <laughs> shit show of an animated blockbuster. I mean, it is awful. I didn't really like... Rio 1 that much but Rio 2 I mean it is Meet the Parents Blue Macaw edition it is piss poor animation half-assed music I mean you you wish that this could take the Sergio Mendes music that it's founded on and just have like go ballistic have like a Latin American Fantasia that's what I wanted dance scenes with birds that's it but no it has to have this contrived plot. It's such a slog. So boring. I mean, I was in a theater full of 100 children. None of them were laughing. Very sad. And I I have to say that if you decide to take your kids to see Rio 2, because it's the only animated movie out there, I guess, um, I have a moral issue with this. And tell me if I'm crazy here, guys. So the plot is... I mean, there's like eight plots going on at once, but one of the threads is that there's an illegal logging company that's, um, you know, weight laying waste to the Amazon and, um, the birds, of course, like avatar style, in the end, they have to fight back, save their home, counter deforestation, um, by throwing nuts at, uh, these men. And they do, I mean, they, they take them down and they drive them away and, Everyone lives happily ever after, right? No, because the Amazon is being destroyed. I mean, deforestation is a really big problem. And um, the movie does nothing to really suggest that to a child. Like, if you are a young person and you saw this movie, you'd probably think, well, the birds are taking care of it. That's great. Fight the, fight the man. But no, there's not even like a message at the end that says, you know, every day this much of the Amazon is laid waste by mankind. None of that and I, I have a huge problem with that don't you think that's crazy
0: if fern gully can get away with it just because they had tim curry personifying business machines then you think that rio would at least find a a more elegant way of doing it but on the same side i don't think we really want our children going down to stop deforestation right now i think they're allowed to grow yeah, up yeah but and they we need to, the we works. need to
1: instill them we need to tell them that there's a problem. We can't just say that it's all fixing itself. So are you recycling
0: because you saw Captain Planet or are you recycling because I you probably probably was? I uh,
1: probably am. Well, or at least like Magic School Bus adventures about going through the filtration system, something like that. I, think I mean, pop should- culture teaches the kids, let's be honest. And if you're going to have a movie like this, make a statement.
0: Say something. It doesn't have to be the whole movie. It doesn't have to be subversive. It just has let's, to make a point. End on, let's end on. the positive note that with Katie Gone, we recommended four out of five movies this week, guys. So <laughs> I Katie don't know such if it's Katie She's being, being gone or if down it's a great weekend. <laughs> our
2: recommendations. Good times. I mean, not only do we recommend these movies, but at least on two counts personally, I think these are some of the best movies you'll see all year. So,
1: <laughs>
2: you, you, yeah. in case, Rio yeah. Two.
0: Hey Dave, what was our lightning round question this week? Well, because it appears the villain in Oculus is a mirror, what was your... Previous favorite unconventional horror villain,
1: which none of us can prove yet because none of us have seen Oculus. Someone yeah, so. will have to give us the rundown on what the real—maybe something lives in the mirror. It's a possessed mirror. I don't know what the rules for possession are.
0: I mean, but. It's, uh, don't don't tweet spoilers at us that just is going to make <laughs> people mad. But yes, we would like to know if you just tell us if we should see Oculus because I've gotten. A couple people, people telling me seen? to see it in theaters and a couple people telling me to miss it. So I would be I interested. Believe,
1: I believe our colleague Eric Cohn of IndieWire said it was one of the scariest movies he's seen in quite a while. Up there with The Baba Duke, which has gotten recommendations from a few of us. So uh, that's something.
0: Well, let's, let's hear people's lightning round question and answers.
2: David? All right, I'll go. Uh, I'll go with Jesse a Carp, Jesse Carp, who uh, at Jesse Carp, I mean, who says credited as Dwarf, the red hooded slasher in Don't Look Now. If you haven't seen Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, uh, I will say no more. But it is truly one of the great movies. It is also probably I'm pulling this out of my ass right now, but I would say at the top of my head, uh, the best. Movie ever made by a cinematographer turned director? I don't know. Maybe one of them at least. It'll be relevant when Stop all fishing humiliated- for poster uh, quotes. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying that it's uh, it's it's going to be a relevant topic when Transcendence comes out next week. It's directed by Wally Pfister, who was Christopher Nolan's cinematographer, and there's going to be a listicle on every fucking website about the movies the cinematographers made. Uh, Nicholas <laughs> Rogue is as good a place to start as any. I mean, walk about. It's it, also. It's don't look now. I don't know. Nicholas Rogue, good guy, and yes, that dwarf wolf. I know that the Zellner brothers
1: speak highly of Don't Look Now because it's also it influenced the oh, costuming yeah. in one of your
2: favorite movies of the year, Kumiko. My favorite movie of the year that's still seeking distribution. Someone get on this. Come on, <laughs> uh, Dave.
0: I think I'm gonna switch up my answer. I was gonna go with. Christine from John Carpenter's Killer Car movie based on, I think, a Stephen King story, but I'm going to instead switch it up to Brian W. Collins, who says, The Mangler, terrible movie, but you will never again see a killer laundry machine movie because I would now like to see The Mangler just based on that tweet, and isn't that what Lightning Rounds are for?
1: (laughs) That is true. Um, And you never know, it'll probably get remade at some point, so we will see a more modern uh,
0: we'll find a way to, like, blast all of the dirt off our clothing with sound before we have another washer, <laughs> killer washer movie.
1: Oh, my God. Wait, is that is that really the technology? Is that the future of laundry machines? It's,
0: Am I referencing a movie dirt? or a book? I'm referencing something. <laughs> Tune in next week.
1: For, uh, the annotated fighting in the war room. Uh, I'm going to go with at Guido C, who said, Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. I, I still have nightmares about Joan Crawford in Mommy Dearest. Um, Those crazy eyes, damn. Um, And I guess that wraps up this week's Fighting in the War Room. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week. But uh, why don't we tell people where they can find us on the Internet, starting with
2: you, David. I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich at Criterion Corner and uh, all around the web, Uh, most recently on The Dissolve, writing stuff.
0: I'm Dave Gonzalez, spelled at first part DA70. It's my Twitter handle. You can find my work there. It's been so nice to not talk about Marvel for a solid hour. Thank you. But You're you, me. Could re, you could re resume at Latino hyphen review, <laughs> where I'll be doing that every day.
1: Oh dear. Uh, and I am Matt Patches, aka Tron. And uh, I'm coming from inside the computer And I write on the internet And I put it all on mattpatches.com And I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches And that about wraps things up On this week's episode Thanks everyone for listening We'll be back next week And we'll talk to you then
0: Don't you know little fool You never can win Why not use your mentality
2: Step up, wake up to reality But each time I do, just the thought of you makes me
0: stop just before I begin. Cause I've got you under my skin. Yes, I've got you under my skin.